Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Here's special guest host, Larry Fedorik. Happy Monday, happy April, and uh, welcome to Kitchener Today. I am your guest host today, Larry Fedorik. Uh, great to be filling in again, and uh, thank you for having me on City News 570. Thank you for uh, listening today. We've got a lot to talk about today, and we're going to get to it all over the next few hours. But let me ask this off the top. Let me get this straight, see if I understand this. So the more I use Twitter, the more money Elon Musk is going to make. Is that correct? Because I may have to reevaluate the whole thing. I'm not, I'm really not sure. Now, mind you, I'm not much of a, a Twitter person. I'm more of a Facebook individual. Facebook is, you know, now becoming kind of the seniors home for uh, uh, social media, you know, the social media home of seniors, whatever you want to call it. It's, 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 te- I don't know seniors, you know, like that's a bad word. It's not, but, um, Facebook is really a a higher demographic, an older demographic now, certainly than when they started. And certainly, you know, all the cool kids are over on Twitter, Instagram and uh, TikTok and various others, you know, which I I'm not on all of those. I'm on um, I'm on a few. I only need that much social media. I don't need everything, you know. So but back to Elon Musk. So Elon Musk is. the largest single shareholder of Twitter now, he bought 9.2% of the stock. And um, I don't know, I'm hot and cold on Elon Musk, you know? Like I I watched his SNL back about a year ago and kind of thought, all right, here's an interesting, I mean, I I knew of him before that. And I thought, here's an interesting individual and uh, he's willing to kind of put himself out there and, uh, and he's, you know, building electric cars and he's boring through the earth to try and solve traffic congestion. And he's up into space and he's, you know, what an interesting individual, but Elon Musk is now the single, single largest individual shareholder at Twitter. 9.2% is what he bought. That's what it took apparently. And he says, he's going to be uh, 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 not involved really just kind of a passive shareholder. I find that difficult to believe, given it's Elon Musk, but uh, we shall see. We shall see. Elon Musk, very interesting uh, uh, individual. See if he really gets into, I mean, he's into Twitter as a user, how much he'll really start to contribute as an owner. We'll see. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of, uh, when I think of Elon Musk, I'm reminded of George Costanza who said uh, when he was pretending to be an architect for the benefit of uh, Jerry and Jerry's girlfriend, he said, uh, you know what they say is that first million is the toughest to make. And uh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think we all feel that way. Elon Musk made his first million uh, years and years ago. And now the money just keeps making money. That's kind of what I, when I looked at uh, him buying Twitter, and any of his endeavors, I'm like, man, once you get to a certain level, you, you make your way into that 1%. Uh, money makes money. It just, that's the system, you know? So if you can get, get into that first million, 
It's not exactly easy street, but I can imagine the second million would be easier. Oh, what am I saying? I know from experience. No, uh, but I imagine that second million would be a lot easier to make. Speaking of George Costanza, um, it's, uh, I heard Mike talking about this earlier, uh, the passing this weekend of Estelle Harris. Uh, Estelle Harris played Estelle Costanza, George's mother, on Seinfeld for many seasons, as well as many other shows in which she guest starred, a terrific actress, 93 years old. And um, when I first saw her on Seinfeld, when they introduced the character of George's mom, this is, a, this is speaking to her ability as an actress. Just by a few looks and a few words and a tone that she was able to give to that character, she explained why George is George. You know, we had watched George for a few years on Seinfeld. What, a, what, what is that guy? And then you, you meet his mother and you go, oh, okay, that's George, you know? And she was just brilliant at that. And um, when they did the sort of the Seinfeld reunion, I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but Larry David, co-creator of Seinfeld, upon whom the character George was largely or loosely, I guess, based, on his show Curb Your Enthusiasm back about three seasons ago, the premise of his show where he plays himself uh, is that he gets talked into writing a Seinfeld reunion. And so his job in the, in the sitcom that season was to get everybody back and do a Seinfeld reunion. And he got the actors. He got Michael Richards and Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Jason Alexander and Jerry. And uh, they kind of did the show. It was, it was so fun to watch. Anyway, Estelle Harris was part of that show. And that was kind of the last time I'd seen her do anything. She came back to kind of play herself playing Estelle Costanza. Last time I saw her, she passed this weekend at age 93. And here's what a Seinfeld fan I am. Um, her, the, the, the man who played her husband, Jerry Stiller, brilliant, brilliant uh, comedian, actor, passed in 2020, a month shy of his 93rd birthday. Estelle Harris was 93. She passed on the weekend. Liz Sheridan, who plays Jerry's mom, uh, will be 93 this coming Sunday. She is of, of the Jerry and George parents. She is the last surviving parent now, and she'll be 93 this coming Sunday. So there you go. Well, so added, I don't even know if I call it trivia, you know, but it's, uh, it's things I look at. Barney Martin, who played um, Jerry's dad, Actually, the second guy to play Jerry's dad, there's a brief episode at the beginning where Liz Sheridan is the mom and Philip Bruins uh, plays Jerry's dad. I'm not going to get into Philip Bruins, but I was aware of him as an actor. There's also um, an, another actor that played George's dad. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's it, the first time I saw it, it was kind of spooky. The actor who played Frank Costanza first they cast him and they shot scenes was John Randolph, who's also since left us a few years ago. John Randolph is just one of those faces. If you saw his face on a TV show or a movie, you'd go, what's that guy? Oh, that's the guy, that guy. Uh, best known, I guess, if you watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation every year, 
John Randolph is Clark's dad. Okay, he's he's uh, Chevy Chase's dad in the Christmas Vacation movie with that great line, you know, oh, Clark, if you need any help, just uh, call me. I'll be upstairs asleep. And, and it's a, a wonderful line. We use it in our family all the time now. Hey, if you need any help, I'll just be asleep. So that's John Randolph. So John Randolph played, and he's a brilliant actor, wonderful, wonderful actor, but there was just not something right about it. And Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld just, what do we do? We need to recast that part. And somebody suggested Jerry Stiller. So the whole premise of, and this is, you know, sort of speaking to what a big Seinfeld fan I am, the whole premise of the of the Costanza parents were that Estelle was crazy and that Frank was kind of this milk toast individual under the thumb of his wife and, you know, kind of a nice guy, but, but Estelle was crazy. So they hire Jerry Stiller and Larry David says, well, you know, George is bald. Would you mind and Jerry Stiller? If you remember just this wonderful big head of hair, they said to Jerry Stiller, would you wear a bald cap kind of wig and uh, play this character? And he, they hire him and he's shooting scenes and it's just not working. It's something Jerry is brilliant. Jerry Stiller brilliant, but he's just, something's not clicking. And uh, one day they're shooting a scene, and I think it was the um, why do you put the bananas in the jello scene? And Jerry Stiller just ad libs the the yelling that he became famous for as Frank Costanza. You know why do you put the bananas in the jello? And uh, and it just clicked, and everybody was like, okay, that's the part. You just he's not a milk toast. He's not. And Estelle Harris is famous for saying, she said she was so happy when Frank's character became kind of loud and obnoxious and crazy because she said, I didn't have to be the only crazy one anymore. <laughs> and they just, Jerry Stiller and Estelle Harris had a rapport that I think only two wonderful actors could have. And um, we lost Jerry Stiller in 2020. Estelle Harris over this weekend, she was 93. As I said, Jerry Stiller, a month short of being 93 when he passed in 2020. And uh, Liz Sheridan, who plays Jerry's mom, played Jerry's mom. Anyway, back to, so John Randolph is in a couple of scenes. And one night I'm watching a Seinfeld that I've seen before. And it's the one where Frank is going to get an award for uh, helping uh, disadvantaged individuals. That's where George parks in the handicap spot and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I'm, I'm watching this show one night and I kind of drift off and, and it's, I'm watching it on Crave or something. And I, I kind of wake up and I'm like, Oh gee, I've dozed off and I'm watching and John Randolph walks on and he's playing. It's the exact scene, except it's John Randolph as George's father. And I'm it's Seinfeld, but I'm like, everything's the same, except it's a parallel universe that I've woken up in. And I, cause I didn't know this at the time about the casting and all that stuff. So I wake up and I'm watching the show and I'm like, oh, what, what happened? Where where have I been transported? What is going on? And I watched this entire scene. So what had happened was in some of the reruns and some of the syndication, John Randolph will appear. But after a while, any scenes that John Randolph shot as George's dad, they um, 
Larry David looked at it and said, you know, we're going to be in syndication. How is George going to have two dads? Can I please give me some money and I'll reshoot all those scenes with Jerry Spiller, which they did. And those are the ones we mostly see now in syndication. But John Randolph was the first. But Estelle Harris always, 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 always as um, George's mom. Just just so wonderful. Just before we got on the air today, I, I was little friendly side bet with producer Polly as to who's the biggest Seinfeld fan. So producer Polly's here. I just want to ask, did you know any of this? Are you, you going to quiz me? You know, Frank and all of that stuff. Are you going to quiz me? Is this like a, no, a con? No. Okay. <laughs> but did you, did you know about John Randolph being, um, the, there was actually two dads there for George yeah. for a while. Yeah. I, I, I have all the Seinfelds on DVD and that, that stuff is covered in the extras. So yes, I did know oh, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When, whenever right. I see Jerry's mother, I think of Elf. Remember that TV show Elf with the alien in the '80s? She was the annoying neighbor right. in that show. She was the what? The annoying neighbor. Oh, was she really? Yeah. I had no idea. I can't remember her name. It was now, a bizarre I- name, but yeah. It's funny you should mention that because in Alf, I think, was a, a woman named Ann Mira, uh, who was in the in Alf's house, whatever she played. Ann Mira was is Jerry Stiller's wife, so it was Stiller, Stiller and Mira as a comedy team for all those years. Right, and then they started acting individually. So there's another there's another connection, if you will, right there. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's not bad. And then. Liz Sheridan, the actor who plays, actress who plays, or I, I suppose I, you're supposed to say actor, actor who plays Jerry's mom is, um, goes back to, uh, she was friends with James Dean. When James Dean was this rebel without a cause, up and coming brilliant young actor, there was a troop of them that they were all starting out together. And one of them was Liz Sheridan. So that's kind of her, her acting roots, if you will. So my, my um, kids, my, not, not kids, but my daughter and son, Liked Seinfeld when it was running, but now they've become Uber fans. And so was my brother who never really watched it in the first run. So we're just this weird family now who still talks about Seinfeld and we, we share it. And my daughter and I have a love of, of, uh, lists. So for fun, one day we started a list of Jerry's girlfriends for the entire run of um, the nine seasons. There were a lot I of will them. Ask, okay, Producer Polly, pick a number. How many girlfriends do you think Jerry had during the entire run of Seinfeld? Let's go with 30. 71. Wow. Yeah. Now, in, in making the list, we weren't crazy, crazy. Like you had to know the character's name and the actress and the scene and the the we didn't want to drive ourselves too crazy or think that we were a little too deep into this trivial and it is trivial but it was fun um but so you just had to know okay the one where she eats her peas one at a time or uh you know Courtney Cox who pretended to be his wife or uh you know things like that you didn't really have to know exact or he drops her toothbrush into the that's all you had to know for the list. And we ended up with 71. Now, let me ask you how many boyfriends Elaine had during the run of Seinfeld. 
Let's say 30. Do you have again. a number? There weren't quite as many, so let's 30 say 30, again? yeah. Yeah, all right. 57. So uh, that was pretty incredible. Uh, George, incredibly, and I won't ask you this, but George incredibly had uh, relationships, girlfriends. He had 62. And we're pretty sure these are definitive numbers, by the way, and definitive lists. We've gone up and down them a bunch of times. So 62. And then Kramer. So then we went with Kramer. How many? Kramer only had like 31. Because when Kramer had a story, it was often not about a relationship. It was right. about Kramer going to fantasy camp or, you know, something crazy that Kramer was up to wasn't necessarily the story of his relationship. So it, the relationship story around Kramer was only around 31, but yeah, we, we spent like two, three weeks on this where we'd text and call each other. It's like, Hey, I remembered one, the one where, you know, and, uh, it was, it was, uh, amazing. anyway, Estelle Harris brought it all back. Uh, this is how we started this conversation. Estelle Harris passing at age uh, 93, wonderful actress known for a lot of things, but you know, known for that, that's kind of going to be the, the, the thing that she's remembered for uh, the most uh, more of the conversation. This is Kitchener today. I am Larry Fedorik, your Seinfeld fan and guest host. We'll be right back here on city news, five seventy. It's Larry Fedora, guest hosting today, the guy with the Seinfeld lists. If you think that's crazy, it kind of is. But, you know, um, I don't know if you remember COVID isolation. I was semi-retired, two years, sitting at home. What are you going to do? You come up with lists. And and my daughter and I love lists. So back and forth we were. And uh, and we love Seinfeld. And that's how we kept up those lists that I was just talking about. I also uh, mentioned earlier that I'm more of a Facebook person than a Twitter person. It was just reminded me, and I was going to remind you then, but let me remind you now that the federal government is promising uh, low cost, high speed internet for seniors. And this is a major announcement today. We're going to speak to the Ontario Society of Senior Citizens Organizations about this. And there is a stereotype of the older you get, the less you're going to be, um, even able or apt or so inclined to go online to do this and that. And I get that. But at the same time, I, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think that applies to some people. I don't think it applies to most. And I, and obviously, I'm going to state the obvious here. It's, it's, it's our world today. Where are you going to be if you're not online, if you're not connected? And um, you have to be able to afford that. So that's the announcement from the federal government. And that's going to be our topic of discussion just after 1230. Uh, today, even though it's radio, I'm wearing my tribute Army Green Vladimir Zelensky T-shirt. Every time I see him now uh, speaking to a, a government, a parliament, last night at the Grammys, he's wearing the signature T-shirt. I'm surprised it kind of hasn't taken off, if you will. Uh, and, and not to trivialize a war into a branding, or but I'm just saying this kind of thing happens, you know. People pick up on a, on a thing, a statement, an item, and suddenly um, either some are marketing it, trying to make money off it, or just by means of, of a familiar uh, look or a brand to a thing so that people know what you're talking about. For the Ukraine war, it's mostly been the flag, the blue and yellow uh, combination. Uh, but I'm, I think at some point, this image of Vladimir Zelensky in that green T-shirt, and I thought, you know what? I have one. 
somewhere, and I'm going to wear it today for no particular reason, but I do have it on today. He was on last night at the Grammys. The Grammy Awards featured an address by the president of Ukraine. Here it is. The war. What's more opposite to music? The silence of ruined cities and killed people. Our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died. And we'll never see them drawing. Our parents are happy to wake up in the morning in bomb shelters, but alive. Our loved ones don't know if we will be together again. The world doesn't let us choose who survives and who stays in internal silence. Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedo. They sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs. The dead silence. Fill the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV. Support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come. To all our cities, the war is destroying. Chernigiv, Kharkiv, Volnovakha, Mariupol, and others, they are legends already, but they have a dream of them living and free, free, like you on the Grammy stage. Vladimir Zelensky at the Grammys last night, and um, I was watching CNN a couple of days ago, and there was a reporter on the street, and in the background you could hear somebody playing a violin, and it was Yesterday by the Beatles. It was so haunting. He's right about music. And uh, poetry and other things like that, that um, people are keeping close to their hearts while war rages around them. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Is it my birthday today? It's not my birthday today, but what's the special occasion? Gosh, I mean... Uh, the Ford government announcing all these benefits now that I'm getting, um, how terrific. I mean, lower gas prices, well, not till July and if they're reelected, uh, but we're, and we're getting gaming today, iGaming, uh, the announcement for the auto industry in uh, Oshawa, that is uh, provincial and federal uh, the announcements last week. I mean, gee, you'd think an election was coming along or something. Um, for the federal government also announcing today that uh, they are promising high-speed, or I should say affordable high-speed internet for seniors in the coming year. And high-speed is the key. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you. I, I, I remember always, do you remember the very first website that you went on? I think mine was IMDB. I remember it's one of the first. It's Internet Movie Database, and they are still amazing. And being a fan of movies and television, uh, we would always be, who's, he, he was it, that guy. He's that guy. He was in that other movie with the, with the Western, with the, oh, I think Henry Fonda was, and then, and then you would just have to spend three days until you could come up with it. And I remember showing my daughter this IMDb. And we said, okay, now you can just cross-reference all this stuff and you don't have to think of it anymore. You just look it up. And so we, we were looking something up and we, we found IMDb and I typed it in and I went to hit search or whatever it was. 
And we had dinner and cleaned up the dishes and went back. And sure enough, the answer was there. Only took about 40, 45 minutes. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. High speed is where it's at now. I mean, I don't know if anybody's still at that rate. Uh, absolutely not. But um, you need, it's got to be quicker than instant. You know what I mean? And that's the promise because it's, it comes with a cost, but the promise is affordable, high speed for seniors across Canada from the federal government. Our guest is executive director of Ontario Society of Senior Citizens Organizations, Elizabeth McNabb, and joins us now. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Larry. How are you? And thank you for having I'm me. I'm good. How are you? What's I'm that? Wonderful. That is we so are good to hear. a solution. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. And thank you for helping me discuss finding a solution today so we can make aging easier for everyone. Well, it's an interesting um, dichotomy, maybe is not the right word, but there's there's two things at play here. Um, I know now that I rely more on the internet than I ever have, but I also notice now that certain vision issues makes it a little tougher for me to use the internet, but yet you need it for just everything. Yes. Yes, you do. Um, and the nice solution about using technology today is you can get it to read to you. So vision issues are no longer a problem. It's using it as a foundation to help you live with these new abilities that we all acquire. I mean, one of, one of the things before a medical appointment, during COVID, they sent me an online form that I had to fill in before I was even allowed to go in and see a doctor. You know, I mean, it's just, just more and more. Um, uh, I, 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 I shouldn't be amazed, but I, sometimes I still am at how much, how reliant we are on the entire system, I guess. Well, all go levels of government um, in the last two years have virtually moved to digital platforms. You can't get vaccines booked without having online access or print it out. When you travel, the Arrive Can app is still a requirement for you to digitally upload and, and do whatever you need to do. You have to register for federal benefits and programs using technology. And unless you have access to a platform and a high internet speed one to do all of these things, it becomes a challenge. If you're a low-income senior, um, that's and we have heard this from people who are part of our demographic who participate in our weekly telelearning programs and workshops all say if you're a lower income person there's no interest in learning the technology because you can't afford the internet to connect it even if your children or your neighbor gives you a hand-me-down laptop yeah the choice and, is and, and food on the table or not and you've already made the point. We've both made the point worth making again that it's not one of these luxuries. You're not going to cut back. It's not like cut, cutting back on a couple of TV channels uh, that you don't need. You need this. You, you, you just pointed out, you just gave to. me a brief list of why this is so necessary, correct? Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned it with the doctor's appointment. Today, if you needed to see a specialist, you were doing a Zoom call. It wasn't a phone call anymore. Right. 
And if you needed to talk to your MP or MPP about a problem, in a lot of cases, they're expecting you to get an email to go back. And fourth, if you even need to fill in the application for medical benefits and accessing help through the Trillium Foundation, it's all done online. Were seniors kind of ignored along the way, do you feel, as this was all being built? Uh, was there a regard for, for people who might? It seems like there was, and now we're trying to fix it, I guess. I think the fixing issue is pre-retirement. Think about, example, a woman who's come in and out of the workplace for childminding multiple times and, and uh, elder care. She'll never get the maximum Canada pension. She'll never save what she needs in the RSPs to live comfortably in their old age. What about somebody living on Ontario disability today? How are they going to save money for their future when they only get $733 a month? They'll never get to the maximum. Or I've met a man years ago who was laid off in every recession prior to retirement, took early retirement at age 62 because they were not able to find work for three years and was filing their income tax just before COVID hit of $17,000 a year in rural Ontario. So all of these issues really needed to be addressed, not after the fact, although we appreciate every step the government makes to find a solution to make life easier when we retire. I think we need to focus on the pre-retirement years as well. I think that's a great point. Now, let's get back to this, the high-speed internet itself. Uh, $20, I believe it is, high-speed internet. Is it, is it enough? Is it low enough? Is it? Are there enough people going to be eligible for this? I think the question is what happens to programs that are offered by Rogers or Telus today that are $10 a month? Do they disappear? Mm-hmm. Replaced by this $20 a month. I don't know. I can't answer that. But I, I do know that. We've had these conversations and part of our workshops have started this trend to say to people, you know, if you switch to everything on the Internet, you can get your television, which you gave up a few years ago. I know seniors who have given up watching television because they can't afford it. Radio is good. They love radio. I encourage radio. But also they can flip to using voice over internet to replace their phone lines. So we've started Mm -hmm. now introducing programs for older people who are thinking about shifting and a $20 a month subsidy for a low income senior for a high speed internet would allow them to save up to $117 or more a month by giving up landlines, by giving up cell phones. If they didn't have a cell phone, they don't need to have a cell phone because a high-speed internet will allow them to have a voice over internet phone through their laptop and they will save hundreds of dollars a year. This might seem daunting to a lot of individuals who didn't keep up with the technical revolution, uh, but it's not. I mean, one thing at a time and you can learn the... You can learn the, the, the voiceover protocol for the phone and you can learn how to watch a movie on your, on a desktop or so, or a laptop. I mean, it's, um, 
it's definitely doable, wouldn't you say, Elizabeth? It is doable. A senior who lives in London, disabled, who's 75 years of age, put this thought into my mind a year ago and said she has become, it is a woman, who's become totally wireless and lives through her iPad. That's it. And said it's very, very freeing, plus explain how she saved the money. And it's all through teaching. Oscar runs tuition-free computer training classes that are beginners. And in our intermediate class, we actually touch on how to become fairly independent with just a laptop and an internet. And $20 a month can actually benefit somebody. The question I would ask government is, what do they define as low-income senior? Right. I I believe... One of the qualifications is that you would have to qualify for seniors benefits uh, at a level before that, which I, that's one of the criticisms is not everybody does that, but they still would benefit from a $20 a month high speed Internet connection. So uh, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how far it goes, I think, in, in the coming year, perhaps, I guess. Yes, especially since the Wellesley Institute about five years ago said that to thrive, a senior single person to thrive in Toronto needs to live on 30000 a year. With a high cost of inflation coming up, Canada pension, uh, old age security, guaranteed income supplement, not keeping up with inflation. It'll be interesting to see how many seniors do the uptake and take advantage of that $20 a month. Uh, Elizabeth, before we let you go, tell me a little bit more about Ontario Society of Senior Citizens Organizations. Uh, I imagine we just talked about this, that you're online, that people can find services there. But tell me a little bit more about this. So OSCO is a charity that finds solutions to make aging easier for everybody. And we empower older people and adults to be independent, financially secure, live safely in communities. We do this through a variety of workshops that are unique focused and practical, and through these learning activities, we do transform lives. Our seniors give us a lot of information, the people we come into contact with, and we do research into where the gaps in services and programs are, and we focus on working with stakeholders in government to raise opportunities to fill those gaps. So again, we've moved forward with this $20 a month high internet um, program for seniors, low-income families. It's a step forward. We still need to do more so that we don't have to use the word low-income in our vocabulary mm-hmm. as much. It's a great point. And uh, again, people find you online through what site? They come to www.ossco.org where they'll find all of our tuition-free programs that are available our ongoing learning programs to help people in all the four stages of aging and what they may encounter and how to deal with their new ability. Elizabeth McNabb, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Larry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Elizabeth McNabb uh, is executive director. So O-S-S-C-A. So that's Ontario Society of senior citizens organizations. And that's how you can find them. Elizabeth McNabb is their executive director. My, one of my favorite posts that I saw on the weekend, I think I've seen it before, but I I, I was like, I should actually mark this down, uh, was 
it's really strange being the same age as old people. And I thought that was so funny. And, and, and it, it just sort of creeps up and there it is. And, and people don't think of themselves, but then when you start to hear numbers of people retiring at 62 or this or 60 or that, and you start hearing these numbers and, and you go, boy, I'm, I'm in that ballpark. Um, so it, it, it's strange to, I mean, somebody who's 60s or 70s today potentially would have had, you know, uh, 30 years of the internet, like 30 years ago would have been, uh, whatever I'm doing math in my head. I'm terrible at this, even though I'm good at math, uh, would have been like in the forties, you would think they would be introduced to the internet, but, and sort of the technology that's surround surrounded and built how to the point where we got today. So, uh, it's not always the case, though, and there are always challenges, and income is one of the challenges, and it's interesting that Elizabeth brought up this point about benefits, because to this point, have we not talked, especially the last couple of years, a lot about a living wage as opposed to a minimum wage, in that a minimum wage is not, a one size does not fit all, so minimum wage doesn't mean as much to somebody in Toronto as it does in uh, Kitchener or in Red Deer, Alberta or in Vancouver or like, I mean, right. That's obvious, but yet the benefits that seniors get are kind of a one size fits all. Here's your money. We don't care where you live. Try and make a go on that. I know Elizabeth mentions Toronto and it's the bigger centers are generally more expensive uh, in, in any country you go to, and it can be very expensive. So it's time to look at benefits, I think, but it's also time to decide to kind of say, all right, let's, let's try and put one number across the board for, uh, expenses as well. And one of the things it's an announcement today seems like I said, many, many federal and provincial announcements today on how much better life is getting for us. We shall see. One is that a $20 high-speed internet for all seniors is coming to Canada. Uh, I think the government and the service providers, these are, these are private companies or private business that have to work together on this. And at some point, when it comes to seniors, look at profitability as opposed to, um, uh, you know, cost and benefit uh, to people who are a little bit older. I think there has to be a balance in that between government and business. This is Kitchener Today. We'll take some of your calls and talk more about this in a moment when we return. And you mentioned it was a doctor's appointment. Today, if you needed to see a specialist, you were doing a Zoom call. It wasn't a phone call anymore. And if right. you needed to talk to your MP or MPP about a problem, in a lot of cases, they're expecting you to get an email to go back. And fourth, if you even need to fill in the application for medical benefits and accessing help through the Trillium Foundation, it's all done online. That's Elizabeth McNabb, whom we just spoke to minutes ago, Executive Director of the Ontario Society of Senior Citizens Organizations, talking about the promise today from the federal government of, uh, well, I guess finally, one might say, that they're going to provide uh, reasonably uh, affordable high-speed internet for seniors. 
uh, how you qualify is part of the issue. Uh, people feel that it should be more across the board than uh, it is now. So we'll see what the adjustments are to that. Uh, 1-800-570-5715 is toll free to the program. Uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo Region, 519-570-2545. You can do star 570 on your cell. If you are technically inclined to use a smartphone, you can talk more about this. I mean, what is the biggest challenge when it comes to the Internet? Is it the speed? Is it high speed? Is it do you navigate it well? I mean, is your is your biggest question, uh, how do we make the font bigger? Because, you know, that's a reasonable question as well. And um, it, it's, you know, as we talked with Elizabeth, it's all there. It's just all there. And I, and I remember, too, like I still have a desktop that I enjoy working from. So that's me. I've always had an office in my home. I've always enjoyed going to the office and working. And I, that kind of morphed into my desktop. When I say I have a desktop, I feel like a Luddite. People go, oh, desktop, you know. No, I don't have a laptop. I don't have an iPad. I've just kind of, and even that has morphed into the smartphone, which does everything that this massive desktop does that I have. Well, it's not massive. It's not, you know, it's not filling the room or anything, but it's, it, it feels old compared to others, you know, but at least, you know, I have the high speed. I have it all. It's, it's, it works well. Um, don't know if I'll ever go terrific or, or as terrific as I think it is. I don't know if I'll ever go entirely on smartphone. You know what I mean? Um, it's great. It's good for some things. I'm still at a point where my phone is my phone and I enjoy other features on my phone, but it's kind of just my phone. So remember my first smartphone, it's a true story because I wanted to learn it. So it's, it's the way I am with all devices that I've ever purchased, whether it's a can opener or a smartphone, I bring it home. I take it out. I take out the instructions. I, you know, if I need a YouTube tutorial, I do that. So, and, and I learn everything about this item. That's what I like to do. So I, I get my smartphone, my first one a few years ago. And I get it home and I'm all excited and I get out the instructions and I get out the YouTube tutorials and I'm running this and I'm running that. And I'm like, oh, so, oh, I can do this and this. All right. And this app, go, okay. And then I can transfer my contact list this way, then reapply. Aha. Uh -huh. And then if I want, mm -hmm. and I go through this thing for like, I don't know, an hour where I'm really going to learn this phone. And during the process, uh, it rings. And I was like, how do you, how do you answer a call? I, I couldn't figure it out. I finally did. But I mean, I had figured out everything that my phone could do and how to do it. And I was so proud of myself. And then I realized I don't know how to use it as a phone because it can do that too, apparently. Well, I hope we get uh, the uh, $20 high-speed internet or maybe less or that it's it's more across the board than it is. I mentioned it's a big day for announcements for things for us as citizens of Ontario and Canada. One of the things we're getting uh, in Ontario starting today is iGaming. Uh, we're going to talk to an expert in that and talk about iGaming coming to Ontario when we get back with more of Kitchener Today.
Welcome back to Kitchener Today. I am your guest host today, Larry Fedorik. Uh, great to be back on City News 570. I will be back later this week as well for this program Wednesday and Thursday, just so you know. And in the meantime, if you want to check out my podcast, it's called Later That Same Life, and it deals with uh, thoughts, opinions, and topics of our day and stories from our lives is how I bill it. A new episode every Thursday. It's a weekly podcast. And uh, wherever you get your podcast, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's there as well. But if you don't feel like doing that, you can also just click and listen or listen wherever you find your podcast. Enough about me. Well, I will add this about myself is that I don't know much about iGaming. Um, I don't know much about sports betting. Uh, I know a little bit about gaming. I don't. I, I know some of the games, the casino games and things like that. Uh, but the Ford government today said that iGaming has now arrived in Ontario, first province to kind of allow all of this. And, and the big one is for a lot of people is the sports bet, is that you can do this online as easy as your phone, all these kinds of things. And it'll be a small number, a couple of dozen of registered organizations who are able to conduct or host this kind of gaming here in Ontario. And it's thought this might be a revenue for the government. You know, they had estimated to have lost or lost not getting in $1 billion as a result of canceling the, the sticker program for your car license plate. Where are you going to make up that money was the big question. Well, this, I, I don't know if it's intended, uh, I, you know, it, it's not always a straight line, A to B, but but here we have between $800 million and a billion, which could be revenue for the government in allowing iGaming into the province of Ontario as of today. I don't sports bet. My biggest thing has been NFL office pools, and I don't do those anymore because I don't have an office with a bunch of people to pool with. I guess I could go online as of today and, and start betting those sports. Uh, in uh, Ontario, uh, bricks and mortar casinos, which are a big deal in this province, especially for certain markets, are worried that people are going to get their gambling fix, if I can use that word, by just going online and maybe not going to these casinos. Uh, let's let's talk about gaming. Our guest is associate researcher with the uh, Center of Excellence in Responsible Gaming at the University of Gibraltar. Chanel Larsh joining us. Hello, Chanel. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. First of all, responsible gaming. Let me ask you the bigger question here: How is it possible to even look at responsible gaming when when governments, especially even governments, are making it so much easier for us to just gamble that's a good question um so yeah i find well first of all, i'll just start off by saying that internet gambling doesn't seem to predict um gambling problems uh uniquely from like your typical brick and mortar like casinos so it doesn't seem like uh just having things online will cause like our, will exacerbate problems, but they, for everybody, but they do seem to exacerbate problems for those who have, um, like who already uh, have like demographic and uh, risk factors 
that are predictive of, of problem gambling. So it kind of like compounds it for those um, for those individuals. And uh, responsible gaming is kind of a trickier beast when in an online gambling kind of environment, right? Like you, you, it's really difficult. It's a little bit more difficult to monitor um, players and they operate on a 24 hour schedule. Well, I mean, this is no different from a, a regular casino as well. Um, with that being said, uh, there, uh, if there are players who um, do tend to use substances as well, like there's no one around to really monitor that. As, um, right. So um yeah, so it is a little bit trickier to um, be able to monitor those uh, those players who are engaging with online gambling, and and so there seems to be um, uh, with but how I like to think about it is that with the because online gambling is much more accessible to players, there needs to be uh, an increase in uh, in the access to responsible gambling. Uh, tools and resources for players as well. Uh, so it's well, okay. You mentioned uh, off the top. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned off the top uh, okay. demographic and risk factors that uh, some are higher. What are those demographics and uh, so, risk factors? So, uh, so risk fa- so some risk factors to uh, developing problem gambling uh, do, do include like being male, for example. Um, also, uh, being from a ethnically diverse background, uh, so those types of um, so those types of demographics, uh, those who fall into those demographics, tend to be at a higher risk of developing uh, problems related to gambling. Um, there seems to be a difference, though, in those uh, risk factors between online and offline gambling. Although that seems this might change. This is from data that was uh, before the. Uh, pandemic, uh, this uh, uh, older finding, uh, but they do tend to, these players tend to be uh, younger as well. Um, so yeah, if you already possess like uh, those types of risk factors, even like using uh, substances, uh, you could be, you are at, at a higher risk of developing problems. That That is problematic, younger. So get them started early. It's almost like you don't have a chance. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're already hooked on this at a very young age or have the potential to be, um, you know, how, how can you, how can you survive this? How can you get some help? Well, that's the thing, eh? Like, um, when you think about online gambling, uh, that, that is one concern that we've had as research that researchers have in the public as well as, um, this thing, like, is the increase in advertising as well. Uh, and that kind of exposure to online gambling sites, like how, um, like there's the question of whether adolescents who are exposed to those types of ads are more likely to migrate to using those, uh, to gamble online, uh, and follow those ads. Um, so what we know right now is that like that advertising, um, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be much evidence showing like for adults in particular, that uh, if you're a non-gambler, that seeing an ad will immediately, um, it will increase the risk of your, uh, of developing problems related to gambling in non-problem gamblers. But in those who are, let's say 
uh, seeking treatment or who already have problems, those ads tend to be a bit problematic. Like it does trigger the, um, uh, like a heightened urge to, to gamble um, in those individuals. So we have to be really mindful and careful at how, um, uh, who are, who are seeing those advertisements um, and the, Sites also have this uh, responsibility to also promote those uh, any responsible gambling tools that might be available, right? Because we know that, um, sure, there might be some regulations to have responsible gambling uh, resources on the site, but whether those players are aware of them and whether they are um, able to access them with ease is, is the, the next step, is the, the question that needs to be considered here. Okay, let me ask you about this because I'm I'm a poker player, so both live and online, and the site I am on is wonderful, and it's exploding chips, and I'm going to win this and play this and win that. And I noticed the other day in small white print at the bottom, uh, a a click a site a link for responsible gaming, and I was like, yeah, that's it. That's I'd never had would have noticed that. Uh, my, my other thing is that you, to gamble, you used to have to pack up and go to Vegas and that, uh, certainly availability must have something to do with this in that now it's just so easy to do it. I don't have to pack up and go on vacation. I just click. Well, exactly. And, um, yeah, the thing about like online gambling isn't relatively new either. Like it's been around for ages, but a lot of people are now kind of making that, uh, not a lot of people, but um, what I mean is there seems to be, be like an increased kind of perception of legitimacy of these types of sites. Like before there was like this hesitation overall, like they, people would probably prefer to go to Vegas or go to a brick right. and mortar casino because they could trust these brick and mortar more than a uh, online, some CD online sites. So the fact that there's now like a site available that is, um, government regulated is, uh, is quite interesting. And I wonder if that would actually, that in itself might, right. um, lead for people but, I mean, to seek. Technically our yeah. casinos in Ontario are government regulated. I mean, it's all, but I mean, I, my point was, and I wanted to ask okay. you about this is, will they not just get away with the minimum, like that little link at the bottom? There's no, there's no matter mm-hmm. how you're regulated, they're going to try and get away with the least possible effort to promote responsible gaming. Well, yeah, because it's obviously a business, right? So they would want to try right. to maximize their profits as much as possible. But that's definitely that's definitely a concern is how um, like whether there are going to be some sort of um, regulations in place for the uh, level of responsible gambling outreach on the sites. Um, I think that would um, be a good idea. And also the way, um, the way that they train their staff as well in, in identifying, uh, it, the tra- train their staff to deal with those who are actually, who actually do click that like or who reach out to the site, um, to, to, uh, handle their, uh, problem gambling behavior. Uh, cause that, that, that is one other thing that, um, would affect cons- like consumer a- attitudes towards responsible gambling or any sorts of uh, services that they do offer is how they've been is how they the operators and their staff actually talk to these users and 
can handle it. Is so. it not just, and I don't know if this is your area of research, but let me just ask you an opinion. Is it not just an algorithm? Like, should they not be able to see that this person is coming to this site a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money seems to be going? Could you not identify it through an algorithm and say, excuse me, let me ask you a few questions before you make your next bet again? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked that because that's one kind of positive that comes from this, um, from increased use of these sites. And um, like increased use of these sites is the fact that that data is available, that we can actually track the number of bets uh, a certain user is making, how long they're gambling for. And from that, we can create uh, like machine learning algorithms to pinpoint who those players are and intervene before um, problems do arise. So we have, but it, the, but we would have to have access to that, that data to, to do that. And we do actually have, um, we do, we do have like, there is a, a kind of a, a shift in the, in the gambling research to seeking that data and making sure that we can accurately predict the, those players and mm-hmm. give that to the casinos for them to use. Um, hopefully they do use it once we've developed it. How much of a problem is it that so much of, especially the iGaming that's coming here, the anticipation of it, that it's really going to benefit those who want to uh, wager on sports, uh, that you can play your poker and your blackjack and roulette and do whatever you want. Those are games in there. They can be addictive, I guess, but gambling is so connected to sports it's who's responsible for that and how do we you know who who should take more responsibility for that oh that's a uh that is a really good question i um unfortunately i don't know too much about sports betting either because uh especially in ontario it's so new so it's um, (laughs) but it, it seems like the same like if the operators are offering it uh they should also be responsible for handling uh handling the use of those games yeah as well they really should um Chanel, we're going to stop it there but thank you for uh, uh the great chat i appreciate it stay well thank you Chanel. Oh, no problem thank you so much for reaching out Chanel Larsh is associate researcher with the chair of excellence in responsible gaming at the university of gibraltar and we're going to continue some of this discussion And I'm going to add, and it's a quick one, my favorite joke in the world. I should say favorite clean joke in the world. And it's got to do with Las Vegas. And I think it might be relevant to this conversation. And we'll talk about this iGaming in Ontario and sports betting and more when we get back with Kitchener today here on City News 570. So some risk factors to developing problem gambling to to include like being male, for example, there seems to be a difference though in those risk factors between online and offline gambling, even like using substances, you are at, at a higher risk of developing problems. Just talking about iGaming coming to Ontario today, first province to do so, to open it up. We're wide open. We're wide open down, Ontario. That was Chanel Larsh, University of Gibraltar, Chair of Excellence in Responsible Gaming. People uh, studying that, of course, and that's a concern. 
And, you know, yeah, what a party pooper. We get all this eye gaming and right on the first day I'm going, yeah, what about the problem gamblers? What about responsible? But I, I mean, I, I've never been comfortable with the government being in the gambling industry ever, ever, ever. Uh, there's a part that will say, well, if we're going to have gambling, casinos, iGaming, whatever it is, at least the government should be there regulating it. Well, they probably would anyway. Uh, but the government being in the business, I guess it's the same question as the government being in the alcohol business in this province, which is another discussion another time because it's a big one. But the parallel is, and I've always said this, when you go to the LCBO, there might be little cards and signs. And, and, and what do they say? Uh, they don't even say don't drink. They don't even say don't drink and drive. They say please drink responsibly. They say please, the, the first line of their warning is please drink responsibly responsibly uh you know you and they'll show uh, uh some keys in a martini glass or something you know to to promote the don't drink and drive thing please drink responsible and, and it, it i sense that's the gambling thing is going to be like i'm not saying it is i'm saying that that's kind of the attitude they take please gamble responsibly responsibly so it's never hey how about don't do this it's always do it, but try and be responsible. And it's difficult. It's difficult with things that are addictive. I imagine alcohol more so than gambling, but when people have those issues, here you are. Let's make it easier for them. If people have alcohol issues, then they don't go to the LCBO if they're trying to deal with them and they don't go sit in a bar every day and have a cup of coffee. They go to uh, somewhere else where there is an alcohol. Um Gambling is difficult, man, because if it's right there on your phone now all the time, okay, you know, and as we talked about with our guest, the algorithm online should be able to tell you, should be able to show you spikes here and there where people um, are, may have a problem. Uh, and if these algorithms were part of the process where they would stop every once in a while and ask somebody, hey, by the way, you okay kind of thing, you know, I think it would be, I think it would be better. My favorite joke in the world, and I used to be a comedian, so I got to give credit. It's not Eric Tunney's joke, but it's I learned it from a comedian named Eric Tunney. who's a very funny man, no longer with us. Here it is quickly. A guy is walking down the street in Vegas, and he gets stopped by another guy. And the guy says, excuse me, buddy, you wouldn't have to have 10 bucks on you so I could get myself a sandwich and a cup of coffee, would you? And the guy goes, yeah, sure, pal, love to help you out. But uh, how do I know you're not going to take that 10 bucks and, and just go into the casino? And the guy says, oh, oh no, I, I got gambling money. And it's my favorite clean joke ever. And it's, that's gamblers. That's gamblers, right? Got to be careful. Here's Rush on Kitchener today. Hey, Rush. Hi, Larry. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't I don't like that the government is involved in, in gambling. I know that they say that, well, you know, it's it at least some of this money gets back into the uh, into the government coffers and stuff. But I, I have to question that uh, that claim itself. Like if how, do we actually know how much of the money that 
uh, people put into the lottery and all and gaming and all that sort of stuff actually makes it into the general coffers versus going to prop up the government's gambling business. Like, I just think that if we were to now that we're allowing all these all these private enterprises to to get into the game, um, tax them and put that money back into the general coffers. And we're probably further ahead than allowing the government to continue with their monopoly, because as we all know, um, anything the government touches um, tends to be uh, a massive overspend of, of our tax dollars. Thanks, Larry. Right. Rush, we're going to. Yeah, Rush, we're going to stop there just for time. Thank you. Yeah, just really quickly. I mean, and it's not just this government or the previous governments in general and bureaucracy and the way it works. Yeah, Uh, there there are times when they pay out uh, to, let's say, the city of Niagara from casino profits. Sometimes we hear those amounts, but generally, I don't know that it's that open, that we know this amounts or we see the books when it comes to lottery and casinos and things in Ontario. We'll be back with more in a bit. Welcome back to the program. Lots to talk about on the rest of the Kitchener today, and we'll get you those phone numbers later should you want to share your thoughts and opinions on some of our stories or uh, other things that we talked about today. We'll get to uh, your calls as well. We were just talking about iGaming in Ontario. Sports bet is really the big part of that, although there's other games that that can be uh, played now online. But sports bet is the big one because uh, a lot of people loved sports betting and they really couldn't do it in the way you could do it in other jurisdictions, not in Canada, but in other jurisdictions how people can so much betting tied into sports. I mean, it's, it, I remember I'm not particularly a sports fan, uh, a football fan. Uh, I, I tend to get involved when it's cultural as well. Like I'm going to be semi interested tonight when there's the finals in March Madness, because it's beyond sports, it's cultural. But just week to week, I didn't, I know I wasn't really particularly interested in the NFL unless, unless I was in a pool. I was gambling. I had a, a big interest uh, in sports. But, um, gee, I don't know if you heard uh, today, but Buffalo, New York, has signed a deal I don't have the particulars, but it's like a $1.4 billion deal for a new stadium that is going to be subsidized by taxpayers. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That Where is that now? And I get Buffalo is one of those odd markets. Maybe Green Bay is similar. There's not a lot of small markets in the NFL, but smaller markets where the team itself means so much to the fiber of the community. It's not just another billionaire with a sports team where, you know, you go and watch. It's, it's, it's a bigger part of it for uh, Buffalo Bills fans and for even Southern Ontario and people across the border to go to Bills games. But taxpayer funded? I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I tell you also, and here's a story we want to talk about, where uh, sports, in this case hockey, can do a lot of good for people. Speaking of Buffalo, Buffalo is where the record currently is, the Guinness World Record for the world's longest hockey game. I believe it's Buffalo. Our next guest can tell us. Uh, world's longest hockey game. Take a, take a guess. You don't have to call. This is just I'll give you two seconds in your mind. How long was the world's longest hockey game? 
No, it was longer. Uh, try 252 hours and 46 seconds. I believe that's the current record. But a couple of teams and a group in Calgary are trying to break that record. And I thought it might be fun today to find out more about this attempt at a world record longest hockey game ever that I believe is currently going on. This is the captain of Team Cure. And this game is not always a world record attempt, but it's a yearly fundraiser. And uh, our guest has been playing in this in this fundraising game for years and years, uh, but is attempting to be a world record holder as well. Captain of Team Cure is Kyle Fagman, who joins us now. Hello, Kyle. Hey, Larry. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Is this a, a bit of a respite off the ice for you right now? Yeah, so I, I do appreciate the interview. It's giving me a chance to rest my feet here. Well, if just tell me how long you need to rest. We can talk for hours. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. So, Kyle, uh, so this game that you're playing now is a yearly fundraiser, but you don't attempt to break the world record every year, do you? This is a unique thing this year? No, so we actually started this thing about 10 years ago. Uh, we did it in 2012. Really? We got the Guinness World Records then. Uh, we beat our own record in 2014. And then we actually took about an eight-year uh, hiatus here. Um, there was a group up in Edmonton, which is just north of Calgary, and they uh, they got the current record from, I believe, back in last February. So now we're we're going out there and we're doing it for 261 hours. So the goal is 261 hours. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so hold on. And that's, I, I imagine there's particular rules to set a Guinness world record, but that's pretty much constant. Is Am I correct that? Yeah, the game's constant. Um, you know, the puck always has to be in motion. There always has to be players on the ice uh, 24-7. Um, what we're doing here is that and it, it's two teams of 20, so there's 40 players. And if we lose a guy, we can't replace him. Um one of the other rules of this uh, game here is we can't actually leave the rink. So we're sleeping at the rink. Uh, we're eating, you know, we're playing hockey. Just uh, eat, sleep, hockey, repeat. That's incredible. That's incredible. And and you are doing a fundraiser as well uh, during this whole thing, are you not? Yes, we are. So we're actually, uh, in 2012, we raised uh, just under $2 million. Uh, 2014, we raised $2 million. Uh, this year, our goal is to get more. We want to smash two million. Um, just so anything north of two million, we're going to be extremely happy with. And then this is all going towards the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation. Um, they're just doing amazing work there. Just a world class facility. Um, it's 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 really great what they like they got going on over there. Right, and and uh, kudos to that. I mean, yes, and, and I've heard of the hospital too, and they are pretty amazing. Uh, 261 hours. Is that right, Kyle? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, 10 days about give or take. Uh, It's a little more actually, right? Yeah. Just a little bit more than 10 days. Yeah. So, um, this rink that we're playing in, uh, it's the same rink we've been playing the last two there. So, um, I've, (laughs) I could tell people that I've honestly lived about, uh, Oh God, I'm going to be living about 30 days of my life in this rink. Uh, when this is all said and done. <laughs> and and uh, I'm sorry if you mentioned it before. I think you alluded to it. But where are you in this process of 261 hours? Uh, last I checked, we were just around that 80-hour mark. Um, so we're not even halfway there yet. But, uh, yeah. 
And who who makes up these teams? Um, is it varying ages? Is it men only? Uh, it's men. We've got 39 men. This time uh, we have our first girl. Um, ages range anywhere from 22 to our youngest player. Uh, I think our oldest player is up in his uh, 50s or 60s. And then pretty much everybody else in between. And um, we're all just local to the area. Um, we're all, you know, friends of someone in the group. So we all just kind of had a call out to people that we knew for, for this marathon. And I take it um, you're not necessarily trying to play high speed and or, or take somebody into the boards because you, you, you don't want to lose players, as you said, right? No, gosh, no. That's the last thing we want to do is lose a player. So um, there's a little bit of intensity. Um, just before uh, I called you here, we actually had a flash mob. So um, we had a bunch of people walk in with signs and noisemakers. And, um, you know, when stuff like that happens, we definitely pick up the pace a little bit. And then, uh, you know, Friday, Saturday night, sometimes we've got a packed house here. So, again, we pick up the pace a little bit just to entertain the crowd. Right. And the crowd pays admission or make donations or both? Or how do you raise that money? Uh, there's no admission. So it is free to come watch. And then um, there is a 50-50. It is Alberta wide. Um, and then while you're down here, we got a bunch of private auction items uh, up for bid. Um, and then obviously people can go to our personal pages or they can go to our team pages um, and make donations that way. So we all had a goal of about uh, $5,000 at each individual player um, before the game started. But uh, I have seen a couple of the players get upwards of you know thirty to forty thousand personally from uh, friends and family and uh, work and whatnot. Um, do you keep score? Yes, we do. So uh, we have four hour shifts. So we go on the ice for four hours, and during that four hours, we we keep score, and then that total score basically goes to the total score of the entire game. Um, we have a board outside the the rink here, and pretty much got all the scores of every single game and we have a kind of a, a total tally going. Uh, Cause I'm just kind of curious, maybe even from past years, if you remember, what is it? Is it like 2000 to 1500? Like what, what could a final <laughs> score be? It must be huge. Oh gosh. I think the last go around, uh, I think the score was like 6,100 to 5,900. So Ooh, close one. <laughs> yeah, very close. That was a close one. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 So you mentioned four hours. So that that's like in a typical hockey game, uh, you would be a line and you would have a shift and you would come off for a few seconds, go back on when you're on for four hours. You don't do that. Do you No. So, uh, what we need to do is you're on the ice with eight players. We rotate a goaltender. So there's uh, seven players on the ice, one guy in the net. And then basically that gives us uh, two spares on the bench. Um, the way we've been working is about every 10 minutes, uh, the guys on the bench come out Two, you know, two guys go on the bench and they just, we kind of rotate that process there, which uh, works out well. Um, I was also trying to do math, but I'm going to not do that and ask you, Kyle, I'm trying to figure out how many players you have per team, uh, eight players on the, or four per team, I guess, on the ice for yeah. four hours. So how much time do you have to eat and sleep? in, in say a 24 hour day? Uh, so we typically get about four hours off. Um, every once in a while we get eight hours off, but, uh, when we have those four hours off, you know, that's just enough time to get undressed, have a shower, um, you know, take care of your body, go do some stretching. There's some physiotherapists here, massage, uh, medical staff, 
you know, and then there's a full 24 seven kitchen here. Um, so we go eat, you know, just kind of fuel our bodies. And then if we have any time after that, we'll go catch an hour of sleep. And then basically about 45 minutes before our next shift, we, uh, we get up and head to the, the dressing room and start getting prepared for our next four hour shift. Um, wow. the other thing we do is we also, uh, each group takes an eight hour shift at one point during this 10 and a half days. Um, so yesterday I was actually on from midnight till eight in the morning. Um, I was off till noon and then I got up, we were back on the ice till four. I was off, uh, till midnight. And then basically I've been on, uh, four, four on, four off, and then I'm four on again here. So but definitely um, played a lot out, of hockey so, in the last <laughs> 30 hours. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is such a great thing you guys are doing. I love when, uh, there's local initiatives like this and supporting local in your case in Alberta. So this is terrific. So, and I have every confidence you'll hit this 261 hours of the longest hockey game ever. When yeah, you do you. that, is, is there a rivalry already going? Is Edmonton going to try and beat you? Or I know Buffalo held the record for a while. Is there, is this just going to be a yearly thing where you got to try and break that record again the next year? Uh, it's, it's tough to say. Um, the, the great thing about this is the group organizers here, they do keep in contact with uh, the, the Edmonton group and the Buffalo group. Um, you know, what sparked us was when the Edmonton group did it here last year. Um, we kind of got together and decided to do it again after eight years off. And uh, yeah, it's been great. I don't know if anyone's going to follow up. I'm sure there is. Um, that's why when we do beat the record, we just try to beat it by a few hours. Um, you know, that way this thing's not turning into a 20 day marathon, you know, by next year. Gee, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and the rules of this were imposed by Guinness. Is that who imposes That's the rules? Yeah, okay. yeah. And basically and, it's NHL rules. Um, when it comes down to it, it's NHL rules. NHL rules for what, for, for breaking a record? <laughs> Uh, just for uh, when we're on the ice, just for. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then okay. uh, NHL rules for that, but then there's Guinness rules as well. Yeah. Yeah. So Guinness, uh, basically, they have us just, you know, 40 players. We can't have more. We can't have less. Um, we can't leave the rink. Um, the, the puck always has to be in motion. The players have to always be in motion. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, is there referees, by the way? Yes, there is. So uh, to pull this okay. event off, we actually have uh, 1,600 plus volunteers. So we have an army of people just coming in and out um, between time time uh, scorekeepers, bench um, liaisons. They basically help us uh, if we're hungry, yeah. we'll go grab food or bring us uh, drinks and whatnot. Um, referees just coming in and out. They're on the ice with us for four hours at a time. So definitely it takes an army to, okay. to do an event like this. Wow. That speaks to the volunteerism. That's terrific. And lastly, Kyle, so how do you verify this with Guinness? Is it footage? Does, do they send someone? How does that work? So we do have a 24 seven, uh, live, um, feed. Um, it's, it's getting recorded. So we actually send that off to Guinness. The other thing that Guinness is going to take is a binder of all the score sheets, um, from all the games that we're playing here. And then they're going to take all the signatures of all, um, you know, the volunteers and, basically all the witnesses and stuff like that there that was on there. Um, I think when it's all said and done, we send them four binders that are about four inches thick of all the paperwork that's uh, required 
to, to pull this off. Oh my. Wow. Well, go team cure. I mean, I'm pulling for all you guys because of the wonderful cause. Um, the captain of team cure in this world uh, record attempt at the longest hockey game is Kyle Fagden. Hope you had a good rest, Kyle. Uh, and good luck for the rest of this. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Take care. Kyle Fagnan is captain of Team Cure and third time. And I, when I started talking to Kyle, I thought third time because I know they had uh, – and they're out of Calgary, by the way, is where they're trying to set this record. I know it's not a local story, but I thought it was just kind of so fascinating, so Canadian today that it, a group of people are going to set a world record, and, but it's for longest hockey game. Of course it is. Where do we live? We live here. And it's interesting that um, I haven't heard of anybody in, in let's say, Southern Ontario region uh, who've said, okay, we're going to beat that record. Buffalo held the record. They said their rivals north of Calgary, Edmonton, uh, tried and I think succeeded a couple of times. But I thought this game every year was just a fundraiser game that this year was also a world record attempt. Oh no, they go, they've done this many times to try and break the world record and then break it again. And I think the old record was around 252 hours. They're going for 261. If you missed the chat earlier, uh, they're at about hour 80. So there's a long way to go to hit 261 hours. I have no doubt that they will hit it. And I also uh, wish them a lot of luck and they raise a lot of money for um, Alberta Children's Hospital. Uh, good for them. This is uh, so Canadian. So uh, when I say so Canadian, not just because it's hockey, because uh, it's people caring for other people and trying to help them, which I think is, I want to think that that's um, a big trait of being Canadian as well. It's Kitchener today. This is City News 570. More in a moment. Welcome back. I'm Larry Fedorik, your guest host today on Kitchener Today. If you're just joining the program, we're talking about the world record attempt for the world's longest hockey game happening uh, in Calgary, actually. But I wanted to reach out to them because they're doing a cool thing for their children's hospital, raising funds. And uh, plus, it's amazing. I'm always somewhat intrigued by people trying to set a world record in something that's not in... Uh, an organized sport, for example, or the fastest man in the world or the highest jumper or the anything. It's, it's, uh, it's an individual world record. And it's usually something kind of wacky and, uh, you know, riding a unicycle, I don't know, whatever, making it up, but, but hockey game uh, to just to play hockey for the long time. And it's, 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 it's not one of these things where when there's an individual one, I don't know if you do this, but I do this sometimes. If there's a individual guy who's got to play the harmonica for, you know, three months or whatever the world record is going to be. And then uh, you watch them and you get, okay, they get a break every uh, two hours and they can eat and they have, they can sleep. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's right. You don't want, you don't want people to, you know, kill themselves over a silly world record. But I always look at those things and I go, well, you get breaks. What kind of a world record is this? <laughs> you know, you you get a break. You're allowed to sleep. You're allowed to eat. But still to consistently do one thing. And they are allowed in this particular game, but there always has to be eight players on the ice and the puck always has to be moving. There's no, uh, there's no uh, uh, resting. I mean, individuals 
we'll do shifts and and get to rest a little bit, but it's still quite an effort and a dedication to do this. I mentioned uh, a couple of times that I've guest hosted here that I'm not a big sports guy until the sporting event transcends into popular culture. Uh, One of those things is March Madness, where, uh, I mean, I gave up uh, trying to have a, what do they call it, a bracket and and be in a pool. I gave that up a long time ago because uh, I just don't know enough about it. Uh, But I'm going to probably catch some of the game tonight. I've managed to uh, figure out, (laughs) because it's all over the news, that it's Kansas and North Carolina tonight making it to the final. And I'm not sure what it is. I know the tournament is 64 teams, but now there's a couple of play-in over the last few years. At the beginning of March Madness, they had play-in games. So really, it ends up being, I think, 68 teams uh, that start out, whittle it down to 64, because that's how brackets work if you're going to go, you know, break it down. That's you, you need multiples of that for it to work. And finally, after all that, two teams. So that's always exciting. The other thing that is for me, and I talked about this last week when uh, I was here guest hosting, the other thing for me that's transcended into culture a little bit, sports-wise, is Canadian men's soccer. And you're like, oh, Larry, you're still talking about that? Yes, I am. Because uh, I'm interested in this because the draw was on Friday. So we clinched last week. Uh, We ended up, I can't remember the world ranking. I think we slipped a, a slot or two in the world ranking because of the way we finished in this CONCACAP group that we're in. But then um, we still clinched for the World Cup, the first time in 36 years. And the the draw was this past Friday as to what teams are in what group. So in other words, who plays who when this tournament starts in Qatar in November. So we're going to bring back uh, Faisal uh, Kamasup from Sportsnet because I talked to him last week about this because I'm still curious about how the draw worked. I mean, I watched it, but I still going to go, hold on. Why were we in that group to start? And how did we end up with some pretty tough competition in our group? Aren't we supposed to be ranked a little lower? So, you know, these kinds of things are, we're going to find out. We'll have a soccer discussion. And we'll also talk next hour about the promised cheaper gas prices for Ontario, not till July. And only if, Ford gets reelected, but it's, let's talk about gas prices and oil crises in the world. All that and more when we come back with Kitchener today here on City News 570. Welcome back to the program. Great to be guest hosting here once again on City News 570. Larry Fedorik, I'm not sure if I'm any relation to Anatoly Fedorik. It's a name I just learned this morning as I tune in to the news this morning, flipping around channels. I spend some time on CNN, and I've noticed also he has been on other channels. His name is Anatoly Fedorik, and he is the mayor of Bucha in Ukraine. Uh, I guess small favor in and. Uh, consolation in that Bucha is at peace right now, but they are, they have been taken over and are under martial law. 
So nobody's happy about that. But at the same time, there's no uh, shelling and uh, gunfire, etc. Currently in Bucha, but their mayor is Anatoly Fedorik. And I, I don't know if you if you have a very common name, you're used to hearing your surname all the time. My name is is not that common, and it's not that uncommon as a Slavic name. As I grew up, I I we called ourselves. I'm almost third generation Canadian, so I don't really have any direct ties to Ukraine. But we always thought of ourselves as the Eastern European, you know, part of the Eastern European. Um, migrants that came in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And, and that's how we always looked at our, ourselves as, as a sort of Eastern European. So it's not an uncommon name in, in, um, in, in that ethnicity, but uh, still, you don't hear it all the time. But I heard it and there he was. And I was like, Oh, wow. I wonder if I'm any, any distant cousin or something um, on my mom's side of the family, my mom in particular is really good at ancestry. My mom has written, uh, books, not published books generally for the general public, but books for the family on history and ancestry. And I spend a lot of time, my dad's family, uh, I'm, I'm laughing a bit because they could care less. You couldn't find out, you know. And great stories of ancestry when they came to this country uh, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, if, if two brothers or two cousins came and they they got farms that were 30 miles apart 30 miles apart was it's a day's ride man it's you don't exactly they, they so easily lost touch back in the day even if they were what seems now like a short distance apart so suddenly you see somebody else with a surname and it's like turns out his great-grandfather was this guy that may have been a cousin to my grandfather but then you don't know because so I don't know. All this to say that I heard a Fedoric name today and I was like, oh, isn't that interesting, mayor of uh, a city in Ukraine? So uh, we continue to watch and and, uh, and hope and pray that there is a peaceful end to this sooner than later. We're going to talk about gas prices later on in the program today, a little bit after 2.30. We will talk to Dan McTagg, uh, a name synonymous, I believe, with uh, paying attention to gas and gas prices. And we're going to talk about this idea that uh, the gas tax is going to come off gasoline in Ontario in July. And that, of course, is if the Ford government is reelected. I believe they've just done that in Alberta, that they've taken off their provincial gas taxes to try and bring down that, that sticker shock at the pump, at least a little. Uh, and of course, the, the, uh, gasoline, oil, fuel is a world issue. It's it's a bigger issue today. Part of that is the war. Part of that is it's always an issue that it seems so much out of our control. So we'll talk about gas prices and, and maybe some cheaper gas prices coming. With Dan McTague, that's coming up later on. Just before our news at 2 o'clock, I mentioned that uh, sports, boy, when it becomes part of the culture – Outside of sports, I start paying attention. I really do believe Canadian men's soccer has become that. And, and, and maybe it's waned a little in these last few days because of other sporting events and other world events. But when our Canadian men's soccer team clinched in Canada at BMO Field, it was a big deal. Uh, we talked to our guest 
about it then. And then the draw for the World Cup, which they qualified for the first time in 36 years, that draw for a position in World Cup uh, division, where you play, who you play, was this past Friday. Our guest is a host at Sportsnet and uh, joins us once again, Faisal Kamisa is here. Hello, Faisal. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good. Okay. So this is going to be a uh, World Cup for dummies. I'm the dummy. <laughs> you're the textbook. Okay. Can we okay. set that up? Yeah, so we can. Absolutely. Page one, how many teams are in the World Cup? So there are 32 teams in the World Cup, Canada amongst them. And uh, they'll all be competing, of course, for what everyone says is the greatest trophy in all of sports. So uh, exciting times ahead. I know we're still far away from it actually happening, but uh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Uh, speaking of this, I think I know about the trophy. You mentioned the trophy. Uh, yes. The Stanley Cup goes on tour and it'll and, and people have their pictures taken with it and their arm around it. When the World Cup goes on tour, you're not allowed to touch it, are you? No, I think it's uh, restricted to the people that have earned it. And uh, generally like that, I mean, there are occasions where they'll, of course, allow the fans to kind of be with them for a couple minutes and seconds and stuff like that. I don't think there's overly great superstition around it, like the Stanley Cup and stuff, but uh, it's right, pretty prestigious right. for the players and the team. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've always heard. It's like, unless you've earned it, you keep your hands off that World Cup, and we hope we hope Canada uh, earns it. So here was the draw on Friday. Explain how this works. Yeah, um, is it just thirty-two balls in a in a barrel, and then and then you pick it, or how how did Canada end up where they are? Division E, is that correct? Yeah, they're they're going to be in Group F. They're going to be in Group F. Group F. And, uh, okay. how, how it works is that. Of the 32 teams, they're allocated into four different pots. And those pots are based on where you are in the FIFA global ranking. And so the higher, the highest eight teams or the highest seven teams in the host nation will be in pot one, et cetera, et cetera. Canada were amongst the lowest eight teams ranked right now in the world. Despite their good qualifying, they were trying to make up for a lot of lost time and uh, unfortunate results over the last couple of years. So... They weren't able to climb themselves into one of the uh, other pots. They were in the last and final pot and ultimately ended up being the last and final team pulled um, from the pot itself. So they're stuck in a group with Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco, which all things considered could have been worse. That's not a terrible, terrible group. Look, they're all going to be tough groups. You're talking about the best 32 teams in the entire world competing on the global stage now. But uh, all things considered, I don't think Canada did too poorly being drawn against those guys. All right, and I, I think we're going to uh, I think we're going to show up and play in in November. Yeah. But before we even get to that, so are you saying even be, before the draw, we're already allocated as a bottom eight? Yes. So before the draw, they they were already allocated as a bottom eight team. Uh, there was a chance on the last day of qualifying that Canada could have moved up into uh into the second lowest group or third highest group if you want to be a positive person canada unfortunately lost their game against panama which meant they didn't get the qualifying points required to move up another ranking again it's all good they are uh they're look we're regardless if they were in pot three or pot four the group that would have ended up would have been difficult either way because again the groups in pot one and two the teams starting in pot one and two are so, so good. They are the world-class teams right now, right? And so 
Canada Canada would have been in a similar situation either way. So it's not it's not the end of the world. So when they when they pick the eight teams though, when they pick the group, um, what I'm trying to get at is yeah. they're not going to pick a ball from group one and group two and group and then put them in A, are they? Or like how do we end up in a group now with some pretty tough teams if we're down yeah. the down the ranking? Well, that, I mean, that's what happens, right? The, the lower you are in the rankings, the greater your chances of being drawn into groups of higher teams. So what they'll do is they'll draw every ball from each of the pots first. So the eight teams in group one were drawn first, and they were allocated into group A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. And then you go down the line, you do the same thing right. with group two. There are some restrictions as to what teams can't be placed in certain draws, but wasn't overly relevant Um for this discussion and it's the same thing Canada being in the fourth and final uh, pot were obviously the last amongst the last eight teams to be drawn because of their rankings and so uh, they essentially knew who they were going to play um, it would have been one of you know a couple groups based on the permutations left and they, again they were the final team drawn and so there was not really a climactic moment there they, they already knew essentially what they were what was going to happen Right, which is which is why now I, under, I understand this now, which is why in every World Cup I remember sort of getting into why potentially in the early rounds you can have a super team against a low-ranked team playing in an opening round. Yeah, and it's going to happen in a couple yeah. of these groups. You know, there aren't, to be fair, there aren't as many, you know, big groups of parity this year. I, just speaking to people and just reading people's consensus, the groups are pretty well balanced this year. You know, there's a couple groups that feature two or three, you know, top 15 teams. That's going to happen all the time, but it is anybody's guess how this is going to play itself out because, you know, some of the teams like Belgium, for example, who Canada play, look, they were the number one ranked team in the world up until last week. And now, so they're number two. Okay. But they're an aging team. They're a team that's not as dominant as they would have been. They just had a lot of points from previous years that they've accumulated through games and, and, and how this FIFA system works. So, you know, the, the rankings are such, the, the pots are such, but when it comes to the field, anything can happen, especially in a tournament where it's essentially one game to decide your future. You know, a, a loss right away would do detrimental value to your team and a win right away would be unbelievable. So Canada, as you said, they're going to be ready to play. And John Herdman has these guys – uh, so locked in, it didn't matter who would be on the other side of the field. They would be there competing as hard mm -hmm. as they could regardless. I, I have every confidence in that, and I look forward to the Canada games because I never really had a team, per se, to cheer for every yeah. four years, but I now I do. So now when we when we sort of compete for this qualification, we don't play any teams from Africa, I'm your guest host, we're going to Larry Fedora, Croatia, Morocco, Canadian men's so, soccer. Okay. Are there things uh, like I know I've had a couple of conversations about that play, as I've been guest hosting here the last the team little itself, while, or a version uh, of the team from Morocco or Belgium we'll or what have you? Well, we'll see. So they won't, 
they were got that out of my system. Go Canadian men's soccer team. I think it's going to be a great cultural sure. thing that's happening like that, right? in November when the, the World the Cup begins. Terry is joining the show on City News 570. Hello, Terry. The European It's Ukraine. I'm saying as Ukrainian people in Canada, we thought ourselves more as Eastern European than we did Russians, for example, or Soviet. But it wouldn't surprise Subjects, me if a couple know. of European yeah, teams yeah. and a, a South American team differently. Uh, would be I, on I the card. There's a couple more windows left. There's the one world. in June and there's one in September. Yeah, that was the international team will train and meet outside so of So he's F T O R E K. We're Fedora F E D O R U K. So, but I do get asked that a lot. Yeah, spelled differently. but it's probably same. All right, so they are. That was what I was getting at. They do get a chance to play. We just got to figure out who it is, but they'll play again at least. As much as they can before the actual tournament in Cotter. Is Cotter anything? As a host of the nation, you get to have your team in there. Is their team anything, by the way? But we also have to remember it's such a hard tournament to win. Develop a foundation and in 
Faisal Kamisa is a host at Sportsnet. There, do you understand that? I, that was the thing, and and I guess I could have looked it up or watched the draw on Friday, but I wasn't sure the way the way they finally did the draw because we're already in a group, so to speak, going in. We already know what group you're in because of your world ranking. Uh, the the other thing I just found out is that the expansion of 48 teams come 2026 and uh, I knew Canada was co-hosting and I knew that the host country always gets an automatic berth into the world cup, but I wasn't sure about that. So it looks like that is uh, going to happen a little more uh, on soccer. Get your thoughts on this as well, or maybe even Ted Lasso we can talk about when we return with Kitchener today. I'm your guest host, Larry Fedorik. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Canadian men's soccer. Okay, I, I know I've had a couple of conversations about that as I've been guest hosting here the last little while, but uh, I think that might be it for a bit. We'll see. Well, we'll see. But I got that out of my system. Go Canadian men's soccer team. I think it's going to be a great cultural thing that's happening in November when the World Cup begins. Terry is joining the show on City News 570. Hello, Terry. Hey, hi, Larry. Uh, yeah, your last name, you said that was Eastern European uh, origin, was it? It's Ukrainian. I'm saying well, Ukrainian. as Ukrainian people in Canada, we thought ourselves more as Eastern European than we did um, uh, Russian, for example, or Soviet right. subjects, right. you know. Yeah, because they yeah. used to be a hockey player, Robbie Fator. I know it's spelled differently. I, I, I believe he was from that part of the world, too. Do you remember him, Robbie Yeah, Fator? that was... Play it was like Fedoruk, so he's F-T-O-R-E-K, we're Fedoruk, F-E-D-O-R-U-K, so. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, but I do get asked that a lot, yeah. yeah it was spelled differently, yeah, but uh, probably same type of origin anyway. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with what the, the one comment your guest said about uh, Canada going forward has great chance of, of qualifying for pretty much, you know, the foreseeable uh, World Cups because they've, they've, they're now expanding the field from 32 to 48 for the next tournament. So it increases mm-hmm. your, your chances drastically. But we also have to remember it's such a hard tournament to win. In the, the various numbers of World Cups you've had in the past, uh, you, there's only a handful of nations that ever won it. And, and they're all right, from either right. Europe or South America. That's it. <laughs> that is it. Right. So it, hmm? Well, those are, the, those are the powers, yes. The Yes, correct. And and up until 40 years ago, there was only 16 teams that used to go in that tournament. So it didn't open up a lot of doors. But mind, just like like you were saying about Eastern Europe and all that, the USSR was basically uh, 15 countries, as Yugoslavia used to be uh, seven or eight countries. So now that's opened up more. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it increases the number of teams that are eligible to qualify. So it does give you more numbers. But, yeah, Canada's in a tough draw. Like, they, they knew going in they were going to be in one of the bottom pots so uh, yeah belgium that's going to be a tough one i think they can get a draw against morocco because they're, they're basically mm-hmm. in that same same level of play croatia is a good team they're in the last world cup final against france they lost uh, a right. tough game there right. in the final but they're they're a really good team too so let's just you know let's go in there's first time in, in a long time let's uh, just uh, you know be respectable and, and try to you know It'd be nice to advance past the, the group stage, but uh, just uh, let's just use this as a building block for the next one, which is going to be in our, uh, you know, in, in the home soil here. Well, a couple of games right. anyway, so we can build from there. Yeah, go ahead, Larry. You bet. No, thanks for the call, Terry. I got to go up against the uh, time here, but um, 
I, it, part of me agrees totally with Terry. Part of me says, why as Canadians do we always go and let's just show up and, and, uh, and do, do well and give a good effort. The Olympics. And then when, when Canada said, let's own the podium, in other words, yeah, you know, we had a good effort, personal best. We finished fourth. No good. We need a medal. And part of me wants to go and just kick some behind at the World Cup, never mind being respectable. Let's go win the – so I'm, I'm going to be of two minds there. But uh, I think finally we're a soccer nation. I, I think it's turned over. And I think that's another reason why we're going to be in World Cups for uh, the foreseeable uh, future. This is uh, Kitchener Today on City News 570. We'll be back. New as well. Am I special guest host now, or that's just something that was there? Because I used to be a guest host, and I think now I'm a special. No, I'm making that up. I, I don't know. I think it's just something you say. But you know, it's nice to be special. It's making my day uh, to be back on the air and uh, being with you at City News 570. It really is. I think I'm back Wednesday of this week, pretty sure, uh, and Thursday of this week to um, be a special guest host of of uh, Kitchener today. Uh, we were just talking about men's soccer, and I, I mentioned that the World Cup is not till November in Qatar. It's usually not in November, but um, it's the cool season. Uh, and because they're playing in, uh, or I guess it's not Qatar, it's Qatar. Sorry, I changed. Um, that it's, uh, I think they're cool season. It's only like 130 during the day in November as opposed to the usual 250. So it's, uh, they're going to do their best. That's why they're playing later in the year. But before that, the big soccer event for me in, it should be July or August is the return of, and it's the final season of purportedly season three of Ted Lasso. And I don't know if it's based in soccer. If you've not watched the show, an American's going to fish out a water story. He's a, He's an American football coach who ends up, for various reasons, being hired to coach a Premier League team in the UK. And it's um, he goes over there with his assistant, and here they are in England trying to coach soccer and learn the game at the same time. Can you please explain to me how that's offside? And nobody can. Of course, nobody who's even a soccer fan explains offside. They're always arguing about it. But nevertheless, I caught on to that show, I'm telling you, I have never watched a show this way where I was on fan sites the next day. And what Ted Lasso does is he streams, but it's once a week. So it's not like other shows where they release all the episodes and then you sit at home and binge through the whole season. He's once a week, kind of old fashioned, but it's on Apple Plus. And I didn't have Apple Plus. I had to go to my daughter's and watch it. And then I ended up getting Apple Plus because of the show. Uh, in a way, <laughs> say no more. And um, you know, how many streaming services am I supposed to be able to afford just to watch decent shows? I don't know. But anyway, it, it, I, I watch it and be on fan sites the next day, reading articles by, I had like three or four sources. Uh, then on the phone with my daughter, emails, when are you free so we can talk about Ted Lasso for half an hour? And we would. I don't know. It's I always, always like Jason Sudeikis. And that's one of the draws to that show for me. But I'm telling you, of all the shows people call all the time, are you watching so-and-so? Are you watching this? Oh, you got to watch. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I got to watch. But this one I did. 
And, uh, oh my gosh, they say three seasons. That's it. It was always planned as season one, season two, season three, but I'm looking forward to find out what's up with that. Nate, Nate. Hmm. That's an odd, odd storyline there. Okay. No more. And no spoilers ahead either. So if you're a Ted Lasso fan, I'm sure you're like this. If you're not, you can catch up at any time because, uh, the old episodes are all out there. You can binge those. You're the comments about gas prices today in Ontario. I say gas prices today and a promise from the Ford government to lower gas prices, take away the provincial gas tax, which would be about six cents difference in July. Uh, when is the election? Oh, June 2nd. That's right. So after they get reelected, they would take that gas tax away. I believe Jason Kennedy in Alberta said that that's what they're doing now in Alberta, taking out a provincial gas tax in order to get that price down at the pumps even a little. Uh, our guest is uh, synonymous with following gas prices and, and understanding this uh, industry, this uh, um, carbon industry. Uh, he is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and he's Dan McTagg, who joins us once again. Nice to talk to you again, Dan. Uh, good to talk to you once again, my old friend. Thanks, Larry. Hey, Dan, what, what, is, what is this? My favorite question, is this anything? <laughs> is this anything, well, <laughs> this announcement today of the tax in Ontario? Well, it's something when we eventually get it. And I guess given there's an election in between, as you rightly pointed out, if we get this. So, um, but in terms of the larger picture, not much. Uh, we're probably looking at a savings of on a gas tank of on a fill up 50 liters, uh, probably about three bucks. That's because it's 5.7 cents a liter plus HST, so that'd be knocked off. And of course, um, what they call fuel tax. Actually, the word they should have used there is diesel. Uh, diesel's been going through the roof. Ask any one of your listeners here just how bad it has been, how bad it's going to be. You know, we hit a 220 at one point, down to 190 now, but still much higher than gasoline. So it will help. Um, it's better than nothing, but uh, it comes at a time in which uh, there are so many other. Uh, indicators pushing up prices of oil and thus fuel, uh, including, of course, the federal government that's rowing in a very different direction, saying, no, we want you to pay more, and uh, it's all about uh, the climate. We don't care about affordability. Wow. Well, and, and interesting you mentioned diesel. I had not kept track of diesel. I do remember that the entire reason for getting a diesel car was the incredible savings on fuel. But was that not it at yeah. one time? Yeah, that was it, Larry. I mean, it's a... Uh, it's pretty clear that people bought that because it was uh, considered a cleaner, believe it or not, and cheaper. But that's, of course, gone now. They've made diesel cleaner, a lot cleaner, and uh, that's caused prices to go through the roof. And it is also a proxy, not just for, you know, heating oil and, you know, look at the weather we've had. Here it is still April. It's cold outside. Um, Europe is out of gas because of the war with Russia. Um, you know, they're relying more on diesel. So that product is extraordinarily popular and it's uh, at the end of the day it's the, uh, it's the fuel that is really the proverbial workhorse of the global economy and how much are we affected by the um the, the current war and the current situation in in russia and ukraine and and the sanctions uh is it and its effect on the supply chain is it just supply chain or is it yeah. actual um availability oh i think it's price first of all because it's probably worth $15 a barrel or about 16 or 17 cents a liter diesel or gasoline remember oil was going up uh, it was 90 bucks a barrel before the war and 
folks like me were coming a warning saying just you know regardless of whether it was a war which none of us could really predict um there would still be this problem of uh shortage of oil globally and that's because we've spent a bit of time here not just in canada around the world europe being the best example of saying no 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 let's no more investments in oil production uh only to realize the world wants more and now there's less and so for that reason a lot of people don't want to get back in the business. Um, they can't get them back in the business. They don't want to get back in the business at any price because they don't be left with inventory they can't sell. Or worse, um, you know, climate activists coming at your shareholders every every year or so. So it's a pretty risky business, and we find ourselves, uh, you know, on the uh, on the horn of a dilemma. Um, yes, we want to do more to make fuel cleaner, but at the same end, get away from it, and yet. The world wants more, needs more. And, of course, it's not just, you know, uh, fuel for getting to point A to point B. It's also, of course, jet fuel, fuel for trains, vessels on the high seas. The world's catching up from this pandemic period. We're sort of, you know, trying to get back to where we were before then. And it's creating quite a mess as a result of this huge demand for fuel, not less. Right, right. And and the story I always heard was when, when COVID hit, um, services shut down so we spent our yep. money on goods uh and goods have to be delivered they have to come from somewhere and come to your door and that takes money and that takes fuel oh yeah and, and that yeah, was I mean, look, uh, ppes all those things had to be produced with oil hey look build an ev you know the impact on fuel required to pull out all the fine minerals to make an ev are just as significant as uh, the lifetime of a, an internal combustion engine so you, you, what you think you're getting is you know at the end of the day unless someone's got something where they can tell me that they can replace oil and natural gas um and maybe short of nuclear i don't think there is really many options out there there's some new technologies and they should they hold promise but these things uh, larry are a long way off and so we can't turn our backs on oil you ask the question is you know what's happening in canada we had the ability to you know, to build out our infrastructure to get more oil to the global markets. Years ago, we've said no. We've cut down pipelines. We've said no to producing them. So people like Vladimir Putin have taken advantage of situations. Said, yeah, I'll supply you gas and oil, but you'll uh, you'll also listen to my you know my globalistic uh, uh, you know uh, dictates. Which of course is happening in Ukraine has been to a large extent financed by the short sightedness of you know of, of green officials in uh, in Europe who thought for thirty years. You can walk away from nuclear, natural gas, and oil. And now, of course, uh, realizing the errors of their ways, because, of course, uh, you know, uh, windmills and uh, solar panels are a wonderful idea, but they can't replace uh, the, the full needs of a global economy. And so we're not there yet. Someone's got to come up with a new breakthrough technology. When they can do that, then, uh, well, beam me up, Scotty. I'll be uh, in another world. <laughs> well, it's in, yeah. Well, the, the what I heard was that if you uh, look at, sort of the the uh, ranking of gas and oil are the are worst offenders uh carbon wise uh less so natural gas and and nuclear and then of course you have this wonderful wind and solar energy that that especially in europe and i don't know if we're like this too dan you can tell me in north america and canada where if we're going to be we should have been backing up with more natural gas and nuclear to wean ourselves off oil and gas at least we had natural gas and nuclear to back until we get to the super clean wind and solar somewhere in the future. Yeah, and I nobody did. Kind of, I, I was in Calgary last week. I gave a, a couple of comments to uh, folks out there, uh, organizations, not related to oil, thankfully, but basically said, look, you can't have a situation where, you know, you simply say oil points the finger and says coal is worse. Natural gas points oil and says, you know, oil's worse. 
hydrogen points to electricity and says, you're worse. Hydro says, you know, so you can't have that. What you have to do in Canada is something we've done very well. And this is really a cause for celebration. We've mastered natural gas. We've mastered nuclear. We've mastered uh, hydroelectric. We've mastered the ability to take oil out of the ground, you know, through something called SAG-D technology without even using disturbing the land. We've done all of these things. We've reduced methane. I think Canada Canadians have to sort of stop in the midst of all this, you know, this inflationary spiral caused in many respects by green policies that have gone too fast and say, wait a minute. Yeah, we, we're not great, <laughs> but measure for measure, we're doing better than most. And, uh, you know, we're not a country that imports 800,000 barrels of oil a day. That's California, the folks in Hollywood who keep pointing fingers north and saying, oh, Canadian dirty oil. No, sorry. You have dirty oil in your own background, in your own backyard. You know, Mark Ruffolo and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the other, a couple of those other actors, I can't think of right, Ben Stiller and a few others. Uh, clean up your own act before you come and point to us. And at the end of the day, don't tell us for a moment that going to Iran and going to Venezuela and relying on Russia for oil rather than your good, clean Canadian friends to the north is a very smart idea. So I see these kind of nonsense and tactics, uh, Larry, and I get a little annoyed because Canadians need to know we're, we're doing a bang-up job, and it will get better. But it will not get better by bludgeoning people with ever-increasing carbon taxes, which make absolutely no sense. And this idea that you can somehow walk away from natural gas-backed plants uh, to substitute your electricity in the cold of winter, which is what your council here in Kitchener did a couple of years ago, they really need to think about what they've done here. Because if you get rid of natural gas, there is no alternative source. Uh, Quebec cannot provide you natural gas or uh, electricity to make up the difference. In fact, in the month of January and February, Ontario had to export natural gas electricity to Quebec because they had a shortage. So I think we really need to uh, put things in perspective. And it starts with our work that we do at home. It starts with understanding that our municipal, provincial, and federal leaders need to get off the demagogue kick and start to deal with reality, and that's affordability and celebrating the fact that Canadian energy, as diverse as it is, is probably the most envied in the world. Yep. Dan, more than fair. I, I, I uh, agree with like 99% uh, of what you said. So I was, I was going to say 100, but I, I thought I must. Well, whatever. But seriously, Dan, no, <laughs> seriously, Dan, well said, well said. And just before we let you go, so practically speaking, are we seeing, are, are, normally we can take these hikes for a couple of weeks and bite the bullet. Because this is so consistent, because it's it's affecting everything else, you're not just paying a few bucks more a week uh, for the cause. You know, people said, for the cause, help Ukraine, yeah. do, do, do. pay the extra money. But you're paying it at, at the grocery, you're paying it everywhere because of fuel costs. Exactly. Is there is there a light at the end of this? I think there's a, oh, an, an awakening. I think there is a great uh, reset in the minds of Canadians that uh, we have responsibilities to the planet, but we also have to resp- have responsibilities to ensure energy security. And if you want to do something for Ukraine today, do everything you can to ensure that Vladimir Putin sells no more natural gas or oil to any part of the world, and that that alternative should be Canadian natural gas and Canadian oil. I'm not here waving the flag. I'm simply saying that I can tell you that we have the ability to displace Russia's oil. If only we would stop allowing uh, foreign-funded organizations coming in blocking pipelines. We need to get our oil and our natural gas to global markets, especially natural gas, which we have a lot of. Uh, and we have two coasts, the Pacific and the Atlantic. We sell to both ends of the world, create a more stable world, and do something to ensure that uh, the Vladimir Putins of this world can never use oil or gas 
to hold uh, a country like Ukraine hostage and act the way he is in such a bloody dictatorial way. And as far as our own prices at the pumps, yeah. uh, are we waiting for this war to end or are is there anything else besides Larry, taking uh, out a gas tax for a few weeks is, is going to make a difference? Yeah, Larry, I, we're going to be looking at some increases, maybe two or three cents this week. But at the end of the week, next week, we're going to see about a seven, eight cent increase because we're shifting from what's called winter blend gasoline to summer blend gasoline. And I'm looking at the right. markets right now. It works out to about eight cents a liter. Uh, so get ready for that. I think we're going to be at the 185, 195 range for a good part of the summer. So will five, six cents help? Well, it doesn't hurt. Um, but it'd be awfully nice if the federal government could get on board. And one of the ways in which it does that is to sell a lot more oil. Here's the other factor. You sell more oil, sell more natural gas to the United States and other parts of the world, the Canadian dollar will strengthen. You now save 25 cents a liter right now if that were to happen. Hmm. Uh, always so informative and enjoyable. Dan, good to hear from you again. Thank you so much for today. Good to be again, Larry. Take care. Bye for now. Dan McTagg is president, Canadians for Affordable energy boys a lot there boys said a lot huh and and i mean i wanted when i was talking to dan i wanted to know you know about what we're going to pay at the pumps but i also wanted the the world perspective because i think more of us are understanding now or it's just more obvious maybe maybe we always understood it but it's more obvious to us and we're hearing it every day that uh the what a mistake it was to Get involved, and this is what people say. Russia, it's a gas station masquerading as a country. That's always been the criticism. But there's a lot of people that I think saw Putin coming back in the mid-'90s, certainly early 2000s, and yet uh, a number of nations who were willing to look past that and say uh, gas and oil because we need it. And there is that factor when you are uh, Germany or Hungary, whoever you are, when, go, well, not in Hungary's case, but let's say you might have a political distaste for the deal, but you also can't let your people freeze to death. And this is where the natural gas and oil is coming from to prevent that in the winter, you know. Uh, but the the folly of Dealing with this man has now become evident because of his obsession with recreating the Soviet empire by invading Ukraine. And look at this effect it's had on, you know, when that gas station called Russia has gone to war. And everybody now is righteous and self-righteous about the war and about the environment at the same time. How do we, uh, how do we compromise or how do we get those two things together? Uh, to move forward. We'll uh, finish up this topic in uh, just a couple of minutes, take some of your calls when we return with Kitchener Today, City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik, your guest host. Gas prices is our discussion. It's like the weather to me. You can talk about it forever. There's nothing you can do about it. I, I, I mean, I hate to sound that way even but that's the conversation every time what to do what to do what to do well we'll take some of this tax off and take some of the wow it's it's so beyond that our guest dan mctagg moments ago kind of painted that bigger picture of uh where we are when we walk up pay dollar sixty dollar seventy he's what did he say dollar eighty five eighty nine up to that high possibly 
um, the powers that be that, that control all of that. It's just, it's mind boggling sometimes. Here's Alex on the show. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, yeah, the, the skyrocketing energy prices are a feature of the government of Canada's policies and the government, the government of the United States policy. It's not a bug. This is a feature. They, they want sky high energy prices. They've stated it multiple times uh, because they want us off of fossil fuels. It, it's just, it's just, it is there. There's, they say it all the time. So the tinking around the edges of lowering tax here, tax there, the, the goal of the Canadian federal government and the goal of the federal government of the United States is to have massive energy prices. They've all stated that's their goal. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper, well, the World Economic Forum, who claims that Trudeau and half his cabinet are part of them, that's their stated goal worldwide because they want us off gas and oil. So get used to it, folks, because there's uh, unless you unless you just completely get rid of these people, um, you're going to be paying, the, you're going to look at $2 a liter uh, in a year or two from now and, and wish it was that cheap. Wow. Right, Alex, thanks for the call. You know, I, I mean, I don't disagree entirely uh, other than I don't, I don't think they um, want it. I don't recall they specifically stated because that would be a political suicide to say we want impossible gas prices. Uh, but I don't think they're uncomfortable with it. If, and as far as getting off gas and oil, I, I thought our guest Dan explained it. We we do have to get off it. I I don't deny that we got to get off the gas and oil. I just it's not tomorrow, and, and it's it's ludicrous to believe. Now we've danced around this thing for as long as I can remember, uh, 30, 40 years. About yeah, and and have we have we moved forward in the field of alternative energy? We really haven't. And to say suddenly that we're going to do it in the next, even when at the COP uh, conference, it, it was like, when do we have to do something about gas and oil? Tomorrow. Oh, you, no, we mean actually tomorrow because we're going to die today. I mean, it was almost that dire. And then something else happened and we forgot. And that's what's happened year to year to year to year. And the world's in trouble. And we've got to get off gas and oil, but it's, you have to do it in a practical, forward sense. How much money do you think the oil industry is worth worldwide? I mean, how trillions upon trillions upon trillions? You think that kind of money is just going to go away easily? Go, oh, well, we had a good run. Goodbye, everybody. Enjoy your solar panels. No, they're not. So it's moving ahead responsibly is kind of what Dan McTague just said moments ago. And I think that's the goal. Anyway, my time today, done. Thank you for being here on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik. Check out my podcast, Later That Same Life, wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk here again on Wednesday.